You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello, there in podcast land. Welcome, Teller from Jerusalem. And today we have a very special podcast. And this special edition is in memory of Yocheved Orbach, Yocheved Bat Yehuda. Yocheved was born in Israel, and both of her parents were fighters in Israel's War of Independence, one in the Haganah and one in the Irgun. Her father later went on to become Ben-Gurion's bodyguard. My connection to Yocheved, of blessed memory, whose anniversary of death falls out this year on July 20, the 11th of Av, is through her daughter Chaya, married to my close friend, indeed everybody's friend, Lorne Lieberman of Montreal. So in Yocheved Orbach's memory, her loving family has donated and sponsored this episode. The conventional way of teaching about the birth of the State of Israel and Zionism is to adopt a method that Teller from Jerusalem has already implemented, which is to begin with the state-sponsored anti-Semitism in Russia, resulting in pogroms, blood libels, constant attacks, that was also mirrored in Central and in Eastern Europe. The Jews needed a solution, and one most readily adopted was emigrating to the United States. A seismic event occurred in 1924 when a decision was taken to severely limit immigration to the United States of immigrants from any country that did not already have a large presence in the United States as of 1890. This was an effective way of limiting the arrival of Jews, and also Italians, who was thought that they had an undue impact upon life in the United States demographically, and was also feared they would also have an undue impact socially as well. The gates of America that had been allowing in millions of Jews fleeing Russia, and also Eastern Europe, were more or less slammed shut. There was a diminished desire to accept Jews in Western Europe as well, and one of the only places that Jews could move to was Palestine. So the numbers of Jews arriving in Palestine soared, particularly in 1924 and in 1925. The Arabs in Palestine had this growing sense that time was not on their side. The Arab reaction was rioting, violence, and murder, as it shall be described in Teller from Jerusalem. Prior to the 20th century, there's another watershed event that occurs in France when Captain Alfred Dreyfus is accused of treason only because he is a Jew. His innocence is unimpeachable. He is publicly humiliated in a court-martial. He is banished to Devil's Island. His tribunal results in a mass demonstration and calls for death to the Jews. Au nom du peuple français, le premier conseil de guerre du gouvernement militaire de Paris a reconnu le nommé Dreyfus Alfred, coupable du crime de haute trahison. A reporter covering the story was Theodor Herzl, and he is now having his watershed moment, resulting in him writing Der Judenstaat, convening the Zionist Congress and working assiduously to build a Jewish state, creating political Zionism in the process. But there's yet another way to commence this story, and for this I'm grateful to the lectures on Zionism by Dr. Dan Palisar, who shall adopt this approach in today's podcast. In 1799, there was a sense shortly after the American Revolution, that the quest of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was indeed attainable. That revolution ended in 1783, and after that there was liberté, égalité, and fraternité, a new set of ideals that swept first across France, and then across all of Europe, 
and there was a sense that life was changing. Borders were changing. Maybe even human nature was changing. And sense was that that which was seemed impossible before was now actually achievable. In this backdrop, there was a hope that maybe even a Jewish state could be restored. Of all the impossible ideas, this certainly seemed like a winner. For in 70 CE, the Romans had destroyed and burned the temple, ending the last vestiges of Jewish sovereignty in what was referred to as the Second Temple Period. And if that wasn't enough, those Jews remaining in the land of Israel, 65 years later, were driven out by the Romans and destroyed as they removed any Jewish settlement in Israel. They sent a large majority into exile, and those that remained were impoverished and sought refuge outside of Jerusalem and in the Galilee and anywhere off the beaten trail. By the end of the 18th century, it had been six and a half centuries since there had been a significant Jewish presence in Israel and any realistic hope that Jewish sovereignty could be restored. There's a couple million Jews in the world, but just 10,000 Jews in Israel, which does not even comprise 1%. And the Jews in Israel constituted but a handful of the total population. Depending on whose estimation you use, the number of residents in Israel at that time were between 150 and 300,000. Most of them were Muslim. There were plenty of Christians, but just 10,000 Jews. But, these, but as these were unusual times, there might have been hope until a great world leader totally dashed that hope, and that man was Napoleon in 1799. Let's give the context. The French Revolution was in 1789, and it was a revolution that devoured its children. The symbol of the American Revolution is the Liberty Bell. The symbol of the French Revolution is the guillotine. It was considered a more humane way of killing opponents, and it was used wholesale. There's an engineering joke, for those of you not familiar, there's a whole genre of humor about engineers. And the way it goes is that people were being lined up to go to the guillotine, and each one gets his head put down on the block, and then the guillotine fails to fall. And international law is if the guillotine doesn't fall and if the rope breaks on the noose, then you are dismissed from the death sentence. So the guillotine didn't come down, the next one goes, he puts his head on the block, and again the guillotine doesn't come down. Comes the next one, head on the block, and again the guillotine doesn't fall. Finally, next one on the block says, do you mind, this one is none other than an engineer, says, do you mind if I lie on the guillotine with my head facing up? He said, okay, d'accord. So he puts his head up and he says, ah, 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 I think I found your problem. I only mention this because I don't have so many guillotine jokes and it would be a pity to waste this one. So the French imbued a sense of nationalism, that their ideas should be foisted upon the world wherever they went, and, wherever they, and even if the people wished them or did not wish them. France quickly conquered its neighbors and spread the ideals of liberté, égalité, la calais, la murderée. In 1798, Napoleon, who was still fighting against Britain and Russia, decided that it was now time to conquer Egypt.
two things going for him. He was a military genius of the highest order in strategy and in tactics. He was also a genius of the grand symbolic gesture, creating an idea that would be remembered. Hence, he traveled to Egypt as that would give France an edge over in the Mediterranean, an edge against the leading power it was against which he was fighting always, which was England. It would also enable France to have a pincer movement of troops coming up from the south from Egypt, Israel, Syria, to modern-day Turkey, which was then the Ottoman Empire, thus attacking Europe from the south, while other French troops are attacking from the north and the west. The great Roman emperors after which Napoleon modeled himself also went to Egypt, hence all the stories of Cleopatra. And although the French Revolution was not religious, Napoleon was finding himself in leading a country that was quite Catholic and a continent that was quite Christian. By attacking Egypt, which was Muslim, and under the Ottoman Empire, he was leading a sort of crusade of Christendom and the Enlightenment against the backward Muslims of yet an uncivilized world. 335 ships and 35,000 troops. He quickly succeeded against the Ottoman troops in what he grandly named the Battle of the Pyramids, and there was another battle, also grandly named, where Admiral Nelson from Britain routing the French what was called the Battle of the Nile. So what is Napoleon to do? He has these visions of grandeur. Eh, la grandeur. He's 29 years old. He has no ships with which to get home. This meant changing his strategy, and he decides to invade Palestine. His army has been reduced. He now only has 13,000 troops and 3,000 camels and 3,000 mules to carry their equipment. He follows up along the Mediterranean. He wins in El Arish. He wins in Gaza. He has a massacre in Jaffa. Napoleon was on his way to conquering all of Israel, but in Akko, or I believe in, in English it's called Acre, there was an Ottoman force led by a man whose nickname was the Butcher. That was not a name that was given to him by his enemies. He'd already earned it as a young boy. How endearing. And he so much liked this name that he made it a permanent part of how he viewed himself as Ahmed al-Jazar Pasha. Jazar means butcher. <laughs> Try and imagine nicknaming your adorable little angel, Dennis the Butcher Goldberg. So people who saw him were struck by the fact that virtually everyone who worked for him, his aides, his cooks, his butlers, were all missing a limb. Perhaps a nose, an ear, an eye, some limb or another, because if he ever detected any disloyalty, he reacted with a knife or a cleaver, so that his servants were reminders to everyone to know, you don't mess with the butcher. The butcher and his forces were backed by Admiral Nelson, and they engaged in battle with Napoleon. Napoleon then received word that 40,000 Ottoman troops were going to join, join the battle. Napoleon sent three generals with 3,000 troops as an expedition to see what would happen. After some initial skirmishes that the French were victorious in, one of the French generals concluded that he could single-handedly finish off the Ottoman troops in a battle near Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor should be rich in meaning to all of my audience. Located in Lower Galilee, it's the site of the battle described in the Book of Judges, 
where Barak fought with Sisera and the Canaanites. And in Christian tradition, it's the site of the transfiguration of Jesus. So in that battle of Mount Tabor, it began and became clear that the French would not only be defeated, but they would be massacred. Then unexpectedly, or perhaps miraculously, Napoleon shows up with several hundred troops. The battle was inland in the Galilee, and even though Napoleon was preoccupied in Akko, Napoleon still had this sense that this French general said he could handle everything single-handedly was being overly confident. He drives his men in a forced march and arrive just in the nick of time. Napoleon used a brilliant strategy of going behind enemy lines, and he burned their tents, giving the, the sense and the impression that the enemy, pardon me, that Napoleon's enemy was totally surrounded, resulting in a big defeat for the Ottomans. Building on the sense of being overconfident and also being indefeatable, Napoleon made a proclamation to the Jews on the 20th of April, 1799, signing it from his headquarters in Jerusalem, and he'd not even made it there yet, granting freedom to Jews to own a land that was liberated for them and belongs to them. This was not coincidentally the first day of Passover. There was a sense among the Jews of Palestine that they had been granted and given an enormous opportunity. We say in the Passover Seder, next year in Jerusalem, and basically what Napoleon was saying was, next week in Jerusalem. There is a historical debate if this proclamation was actually delivered, but in the collective memory, it definitely was. The local Jews believed that the most powerful leader in the world is now going to hand them on a silver platter the land for which they had been yearning for 17 centuries. The only catch was is that Napoleon heads back to Akko, to Acre, and he concludes that he will be unable to break the siege of Akko. And therefore his pledge to go north will not happen. Hence, the plan to go up through Syria into the Ottoman Empire and then attack the rest of Europe has to be shelved. So what does a leader do at a time like this? ay yeah, yeah, yeah. He loudly declares and sends back a message to France that he's been victorious. He returns to Egypt without ever having won in Akko or Jerusalem and without giving the Jews the chance to reclaim their ancestral land. Once he's back in Egypt, he sees that there's not much for him to do there. So he heads back to France on one of the few boats that he has left and he declares in France that he'd been victorious, and in November of 1799, he stages a coup, creating councils in France, and he becomes the leader of the First Council. He was able to pursue his destiny, but he left the Jews absolutely devastated. The worst thing that you can do is give someone hope, and then dash it, and that's what Napoleon did to the Jews. You think you're going to land a very important job, you tell your friends, tell your wife, you tell your family, and then the boss changes his mind. You're expecting a baby, and then, Khalila, God forbid, you suffer a miscarriage. Or, not in exactly the same breath, how about how the LA Laker fans felt in 2004 when the Detroit Pistons were unbelievably beat the Lakers? The Lakers were staffed with Hall of Famers. They were wall-to-wall, such incredible talent, including Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Carmelone. The Lakers were heavily favored, with many predicting a blowout. Well, they got the blowout part right, but not the team. But the Detroit Pistons have just shocked the Los Angeles Lakers. 
100 to 87 to win the NBA title. He remains one of the most shocking upsets in NBA history. So once again, the worst thing you can do is give someone hope and then dash it. And that is what Napoleon did to the Jews. He left them high and dry with the feeling that perhaps they will never, ever have their own country. Napoleon's second blow was even more devastating, and it came seven years later. In 1791, France declared all men to be equal, even including Jews. That was revolutionary for Europe at that time. Jews had been expelled from every country in which they had lived, and even those countries in which they had lived, they were limited where they were allowed to live. So the French Declaration of Equality, for the first time giving Jews citizenship, was radical. But as far as Napoleon was concerned, it had been given away just too cheaply to the Jews. In the eyes of Napoleon and many other Frenchmen, the Jews were not really part of the French nation. Napoleon decided that if the Jews were going to get equality, they're going to have to pay a price, and quite a heavy price. And that price was for them to declare that they were no longer a nation. Now they were focused exclusively on France, with no separate aims, and no longer any aspirations for the land of Israel. Thus, with his sense of the grand gesture, he made an assembly of Jewish notables and brought them to Paris. And he asked them 12 questions. The most important question is, do Jews born in France and treated by the laws French citizens consider themselves as citizens of France, and is that their only country? The notables conferred, and on this and other questions, they knew that in the end, there was only one correct answer. The question was only how to phrase it in the best possible way. The answer had to be yes, for the possibility of having a home and to be treated as citizens was an offer that was just too good to turn down. And for this, they were willing to give up the Jewish nationhood and their peoplehood for it. They had to give up the Jewish solidarity, and they had to make a sense and a stance that a Jew in France cares about his fellow Frenchmen, not about an English Jew, a Bulgarian Jew, a Belgian Jew, a Guatemalan Jew, only about fellow Frenchmen. And this also was not enough for Napoleon. He insisted upon convening the Sanhedrin for this declaration. Sanhedrin is the supreme judicial body, which had been defunct already since the 5th century, so it was impossible to convene it, and yet, and yet, he did it. And the Sanhedrin affirmed all that the notables had said before them. This decision was devastating to Jews of France, who now feared that they would have to pay the price of declining Jewish nationhood in order to be awarded citizenship. Jews everywhere feared that what had started in France would spread everywhere, and Jews would have to give up their nationhood and their desire to return to Israel as the only way that they'd be able to, be, to acquire citizenship. And the idea of giving up kinship from one Jew to another is almost too incredible for us to imagine. Napoleon originally promised the Jews their homeland, but he was unable to deliver. Then he made their dream to be accepted with the rights contingent upon the fact they had to give up their dream of returning to Zion. Any reasonable observer viewing the matters from 1807 would have concluded that the ability of Jews to return to the land of Israel was over for good. But something wondrous happened, and we shall be highlighting again and again on Teller from Jerusalem. Drum roll, please. The Kibbutz Galiot, the gathering of the exiles, 
went from Jews of 10,000 Jews only to the time declaration of the State of Israel to 650,000 and today over 7 million. It's the largest population of Jews in the world. The incoming of the exiles from more than 100 countries and so many, so many languages is also the greatest success story in history of absorbing immigrants that any country has ever experienced. And despite it all, almost everyone gets along. It's not only a state of the Jews and by the Jews, but it's also a state for the Jews. The calendar is the Jewish calendar. Shabbat is the day of rest. The symbols are Jewish. The school system includes the holidays and the Bible, Jewish tradition, and Jewish history. The Israeli army not only defends its citizens, will come to the aid of Jews outside of Israel, such as with Ethiopian Jews, or Jews in Miami buried under a condo collapse. And needless to say, Israel would not just go there if it would just be Jews. Wherever there are disasters in the world, Israel is always the first responders, be it in Haiti or the earthquake in Turkey. Israel makes it a point of always being the first responders to catastrophes or crises in the world. Israel is also a democracy since its founding. All elections are free and fair, and it's a democracy against all the odds. There is no other democracy in the Middle East, and the majority of people who move to Israel come from lands where they never experienced a democracy. Israel has been at war since its founding, the worst possible situation for a democracy, and still it's thriving. The country economically is quite strong. It's a startup nation, if not a vaccination nation. And all of this despite the absence of national resources, despite a boycott of virtually all of its neighbors, despite a defense burden which is the highest in the democratic world. The above is all internal. Internationally, Israel is militarily one of the strongest in the world, and regularly compared with the other nations whose populations and incomes are far, far greater. It has a strong relation with the United States that has endured for more than half a century. Israel is not geographically close to the United States, it's not comparable in size to the United States, and it's not a vassal state, yet the relationship is very strong. And Israel is being increasingly accepted among others within the Middle East. So, over 220 years what seemed impossible not only has happened, but that homeland has come about, survived and flourished. The job of the Zionist historian is to understand how this came about each step by amazing step. Thanks for listening to this special podcast from Teller from Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.